This tape is a talk by guest speaker Tom McFarlane. It's titled, Understanding Quantum Mechanics, recorded Sunday, March 12, 1995, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Okay, I'd like to start by uh, quoting from this book here, Challenge and Response, which describes the aims and purposes of the Center for Sacred Sciences. There's one paragraph here that's relevant to my talk, so I thought I'd uh, share it with you. Most traditional spiritual paths were developed in pre-scientific cultures. Consequently, many of their teachings are expressed in terms of cosmologies or worldviews which we no longer find relevant. And those who adopt them often end up leading a kind of schizophrenic existence. The question then naturally arises, is it possible to incorporate both science and mysticism into a single coherent worldview? We believe that it is. Up until the first quarter of the 20th century, science was wedded to a materialist philosophy which was inherently antagonistic to all forms of religious insight. With the advent of quantum physics, however, this materialist philosophy has become scientifically untenable. That is, the evidence of science itself contradicts a purely materialistic account of the universe. The purpose of this talk is to elaborate on this statement and explain to you a little bit how exactly quantum mechanics contradicts materialism. Now, this claim that uh, the material world doesn't exist might find a little, sound a little familiar to you, um, so I thought I'd quote uh, a few other words by a little-known Western mystic. Um, the appearance of an objective world distinguishable from a subjective self is but the imaginary form in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. That may sound a little familiar to some of you. It's the first fundamental, of course. Now compare that to the words of Niels Bohr, who's a uh, very prominent quantum physicist who was one of the founders of quantum physics. An independent reality in the ordinary physical sense can neither be ascribed to the phenomena nor to the agencies of, of observation. Or how about the words of Shankara, the famous Hindu philosopher? All things from Brahma the Creator down to a single blade of grass are simply appearances and not real. And here's a quote from Heisenberg, a, another quantum physicist who invented quantum mechanics. If one wants to give an accurate description of the elementary particle, the only thing which can be written down as a description is a probability function. But then one sees that not even the quality of being belongs to what is described. Okay, so these are pretty outrageous claims from both scientists and mystics, and they seem to be saying very similar things. Namely, that we normally live in a delusion. That these objects, you know, gongs and cups and other people are... Uh, not existing in the way we normally think they are existing. 
And we might be tempted to dismiss this as ludicrous. This is pretty outrageous. It, it contradicts our normal experience of the world. And, well, you know, these Eastern mystics, they might just be loonies, and uh, so we can ignore them. It's obviously not correct. And, uh, but what about these physicists? <laughs> I mean, for a modern Westerner, that's a little bit harder to just dismiss as mumbo-jumbo because it's the foundation of modern Western society. I mean, you go out and you pick up your cellular phone and there's a little IC chip in there and it's running on the principles of quantum mechanics. It's hard to, you know, you throw out quantum mechanics and you, you can't explain why this works anymore. It becomes very mystical. Um, and these physicists that I quoted here, they're not, they aren't some fringe physicists. These aren't guys that are, uh, you know, considered loonies by the scientific community. These guys have been given Nobel Prizes and they're revered as the founders of modern physics by the scientific community. So what are we going to do with uh, this predicament? That on the one hand, this is the foundation of the modern scientific view. On the other hand, it seems to contradict our immediate experience that uh, objects seem to exist objectively real. How are we going to reconcile these two facts with each other? So the, it boils down to the question, well, if quantum mechanics is right, why does it seem so wrong? Or to flip it around the other way, if our experience of the world is wrong, how can that possibly be true? I mean, it it seems so right. How is it that we can be deluded about this? So, one of the main purposes of this talk is not only to explain quantum mechanics, but to explain how it is that this might be able to be comprehended. How we can possibly reconcile this scientific theory with our immediate experience. And I'm going to discuss two analogies <coughs> to help make this clear. Imagine that you go back in time 3,000 years. You get in a time machine. And you bring along an interpreter, because they don't speak English 3,000 years ago. And you meet with some people in a culture, and you discover that they believe the world is flat. They think it's a big flat disk or something. And you tell them, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's actually the sphere. It's big and it's round. And they look at you like you're crazy. And they say, well, why do you say that? And, um, and they sit down and think, well, well, because, you know, that's the way it is. And, uh, and they say, well, give me some proof. Prove to me that the world isn't flat. Because when I look at it, it looks completely flat to me. I mean, there are these hills and stuff, but, you know, if I'm out on the ocean or in a big flat plane or something, I mean, it looks perfectly flat. And they further explain to you that they use, um, you know, they measure things out with, uh, well, 3,000 years ago was a little bit before um, Euclid had his geometry, but for the sake of the argument, we'll suppose that they had Euclidean geometry then, and they used it to measure out plots of land and things. 
and I had this whole theory of plane geometry, and it conformed perfectly to their experience and their measurements and everything, and they used it to plot roads and distances and measure all the angles, and it all fit. They had sort of a scientific understanding of the world was flat. And you're saying, now, you're telling me this is wrong? That it's not flat? Well, then explain how all this works. And I say, give me evidence. So what are you going to say to them? How could you prove to them that the world isn't flat? I go west, I end up coming from the east. Good. So if you, you tell them, okay, if you start traveling west, and you just keep on going, and you keep on going, and you keep on going for thousands and thousands of miles, you'll end up coming back this way, and they'll say, you're crazy. <laughs> well, part of the problem is, they didn't have uh, ships to circumnavigate the globe, they didn't have planes, they, you know, maybe the furthest they traveled is uh, 100 miles from where they were born or something in those days, I don't know. And so this possibility, it isn't a possibility for them to, to verify it this way. They didn't have the technology. And so this sort of argument wouldn't really mean anything to them. So what else could you do? Any other ideas? Show them photographs from space. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> would work either way. Yeah, they would think you were really crazy. Man. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, the fact that you had this piece of paper with some picture on it, they'd say, well, you know, yeah. Um, probably wouldn't constitute evidence to them in the first place. But the other problem is, you know, for the sake of the argument, let's say you can't bring back a rocket ship from the future or an airplane or photographs or things like that. You're you're dealing with them on their terms. You could show them the sun and the moon and you know, how wide the moon is shaped like it is and so on and so forth. I'd say, oh, that's an interesting theory. Hmm. So what hard evidence could you give them? They say, well, you know, the disc is sitting here and these things, they come and go. And, you know. Shadows, that would be interesting. Yeah, you could... I think someone a long time ago actually did an experiment where they had sticks and, and the sun was moving at a certain time of day. It cast a different shadow on one part of the earth than another. So it shows that the Earth is actually a little bit curved. So that might be an interesting experiment you could show them. That might involve um, you know, some pretty. It's a it's a pretty sophisticated experiment, and it it would involve lots of arguments and things. So you could you could probably do that, and maybe you could convince some people. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might work. Although in those days, probably the ships were so small that you'd probably lose sight of it before it would actually drop off. So when they had the really big masts, you could see that the, the ship would drop, and you'd still see the mast. So that would be another thing. The point, though, is that these sorts of things aren't common experience. You you have to appeal to fancy ships to take you way out to sea or, or these big poles and, and to synchronize the shadows you'd have to have clocks and things like this and you, you have to it, they're subtle measurements. And so it's not like you can just show someone something very simply to prove to them. 
And so the idea that the world is flat is completely compatible with most of our normal experience. It would only be when you start to consider uh, more esoteric experience that, uh, that it would start to contradict this idea that the world is flat. You could start going far off outside of your usual experience. And a ship sail way off. Or, or you could start doing these funny experiments and making subtle experiments and arguments and things like that. And so you get pretty frustrated because you don't have clocks in these things or ships or anything like that. And so you get back in your time machine and you decide to head back to the future. Only there's a 500-year uh, miscalculation and instead of coming all the way back, you end up in 1495 rather than 1995. And to your great relief, Columbus has just sailed and discovered America, and people are convinced the world is round. And since you were just stumped, you asked them, well, how is it that, uh, that everyone believes the world is round now? What evidence did they base this belief on? And so you go to the local university, and Nicholas Copernicus is an astronomy student there, and he explains to you that... Uh, well, uh, there are these ships, and they're going over the sea, and they have all these navigational equipment, and we have this cosmology, and we're making all these measurements, and uh, they couldn't navigate the seas without this theory, and they've navigated the seas, and, and so it, it's strong evidence that this theory is true, and, and in fact, uh, the way they have navigated around these seas over the vast oceans would contradict the idea that the Earth is flat. And you say, okay, well, that's, that's a pretty good argument. But then you ask him, how do you explain the fact that the world is flat? Or that it isn't flat, that it appears flat? And you say, well, the world is so big and round that if you look at just a part of it, then it appears as though it's flat. So let me just sketch a quick picture here. You have the, the round world, the globe, and if you focus in on just a little square on the surface of the globe, if you were to blow that up like, and look at it in detail, it would look very much like just a square plot of land that's flat. Because you're focusing on just such a small part of it, there's very little curvature in just a small part of the globe. And so if your experience is limited to this very small part of the world, then the idea that it is flat is compatible with your experience. Even though it's not true. The world is actually round. But you can think of it as though it were flat. Okay. So there's, there's been a, a shift in reality here. If any of you are familiar with anything that uh, Franklin Merrill Wolf has written, he's called this idea the shift in the base of reference where even though the appearances are very much the same, the world still appears flat, your whole way of interpreting this appearance has shifted. You've shifted the whole base of reference from considering this apparently flat world as being really flat to considering it as being an appearance due to only looking at a small portion of a really round 
Now, when you're talking to Copernicus, you, you. At this point, he's very young. He hasn't uh, come up with his revolutionary theory yet. Um, he's still being taught by the uh, Ptolemaic system, and he's telling you about these navigational theories. And he says that uh, the Earth is the center of the universe, and the sun and the planets and the stars all revolve around the Earth. And you're saying, oh no, here we go again. You know, I just got through this convincing them and, and that it was all that it wasn't flat and now here I have to deal with this this other problem with uh, them being stuck in this other illusion oh so you you start arguing with Copernicus and you say well no I don't I don't think the earth is really the center I think the earth is really moving and the sun's the center and all this and you go through the same thing and he says well give me some evidence show me some proof and and you find you really can't give any proof because it relies on very subtle measurements of the planets and fancy calculations and mathematics and all sorts of stuff. Because when you think of it, our direct experience is that we're sitting here and the Earth is still. We don't experience the Earth moving. We don't experience it spinning. And if we just sit here on this apparently stationary Earth, what do we see in the morning? We see the sun slowly move up. And if it's at night, we see the stars, and they all move around. And so, obviously, the Earth is fixed at the center of the universe, and everything rotates around it. I mean, that's our direct experience. And Copernicus tells you all this, and, well, you don't really have much to say to him to prove that this appearance isn't the reality. So... You get back in your time machine, and you go, finally you, you get to the, the present, back to 1995. So you go down to the local physics department, and you say, well, you don't tell them you went into the past, because they... <laughs> <laughs> but you tell them, you know, I was wondering about this uh, sun being at the center of the universe business, and you know, that's not what we experience and stuff. What evidence really is there for this? And they explain to you the whole theory about how, you know, we shoot off space probes, and this is all based on Newton's theory of gravitation, how the sun's at the center and the planets move around, and, and that this system just wouldn't really work uh, very well. We couldn't make all these calculations. It's, it's precisely with the, with the Earth-centered system. And uh, it just wouldn't make sense. It, it, you might be able to force it, but it would be so incredibly messy that it would just be ridiculous to, to consider that possibility. And plus, there's the obvious fact that uh, you uh, you go up into rocket ships and you travel around, and if you've already gone to the moon, you can realize that if you consider the sun as, as stationary, then you can actually see the Earth moving around in an orbit. And from out in the middle of space. If you choose that as your reference point, you can see it moving around. So, what's the point of these stories? The point is that our idea of what's real is dependent on how broad our field of experience is. If our experience is limited to a certain realm, we can be fooled by what's actually real. And when we expand that field of experience, 
we can come across things that totally contradict our idea of what's real in that limited realm. Just like when we were on this little plot of land on the surface of the earth, it was okay to think that it was really flat. But once we expanded our range of experience, the curvature was evident, and it contradicted the idea that it was really flat. And so we're forced to change our whole idea of, of what's real, even though at, on the local scale, the appearance, the appearance stays the same. And the same thing happened with the Earth uh, being at the center and shifting to going around the Sun. The, the experience, the immediate experience we have on this local scale is the same. But if you expand your, your experience to include all these subtle measurements and astronomical calculations and space probes and all this far out stuff that they didn't have 500 years ago, then you'd be forced to revise your idea of what's really happening. And so the appearance would be reinterpreted to change what is real. So the analogy here is that this exactly is what's happening with quantum mechanics. We have this experience of these objects as existing objectively, but this is only an appearance that's an artifact of our experience being limited to the macroscopic scale. And when we go down to the microscopic level, we find that that idea totally breaks down. And so this idea that this exists objectively is only an artifact. It's, it's just as illusory as the flat earth. And that if we expand our experience to include the microscopic world, that we see that that idea breaks down, just as the flat earth breaks down. We're forced to think of it as round. So that's a, a little prologue to show you how it is that this could possibly be true. Niels Bohr, who I quoted earlier, once wrote that, as our knowledge becomes wider, we must always be prepared to expect alterations in the point of view best suited for the ordering of our experience. But he knew about this. He knew what was going on. And Heisenberg wrote that the existing scientific concepts cover always only a very limited part of reality, and the other part that has not yet been understood is infinite. Whenever we proceed from the known into the unknown, we may hope to understand, but we may have to learn at the same time a new meaning of the word understanding. So we may have to totally shift our idea of what's real in order to understand what's going on when we expand our experience. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you the actual hard evidence, the quantum mechanical ex experiments that people have done that contradict the materialist idea. Okay, so here's the first experiment. Richard Feynman once described this experiment as containing the whole mystery of quantum mechanics. 
it's all here, right, in this one experiment. That's called the double slit experiment. Now, before I actually describe to you the quantum mechanical version of this experiment, I'm going to explain to you the idea of the experiment done with particles and the idea of the experiment done with waves. Before quantum mechanics came along, the idea was that there were these objective little particles and they were bouncing around through space and uh, some of them we called atoms and, and they jiggled around and they did things and if they jiggled a lot, that made an object hot and if an object was really hot, then maybe it emitted some energy and the energy was uh, waves which were kind of continuous things, like water. The water is just this continuous medium that's everywhere, and the wave is like this jiggling in the medium. And so this energy was conceived of this continuous flow emanating from something. Well, the classical theory couldn't explain certain observations about the radiation that came from objects. For example, if you take a hot poker and stick it near fire down in the coals and it sits there for a long time, you pull it out and it's glowing this sort of dull red. Well, if you calculate the frequency spectrum of that and everything, and the fact that it's glowing red as opposed to blue or purple or green or something, you find out that the classical theory doesn't predict it glowing red, it predicts it glowing purple. So it, it just doesn't match with experience. And a guy named Max Planck said that, well, we can explain this if we assume that instead of the radiation being this continuous flow, it actually comes in discrete particles. But this contradicted the idea that held up to that day that the energy was a continuous wave. And things got all confused because people didn't know, well, is it a wave or is it a particle? What's, what's going on? They didn't have any theory or any idea of what's going on. So let me show you what happens if we assume light is a particle, first of all. I've drawn on the blackboard here a screen, a vertical line with two empty holes in it. And what's going to happen is on the left side of this line, we're going to have uh, a source of particles. And on the right side of this line, we're going to have a screen, something like your television screen or a photographic plate, something that can detect the radiation coming through here. Now, as these particles get emitted on the left, they're either going to go through one hole or the other. Just like if you were throwing baseballs, you're on a merry-go-round, and spun around, you have a whole load of baseballs or tennis balls or something, and you're just throwing them madly as you spin around. And so these things are just shooting out in all sorts of different directions. Some of them are going to hit the screen, some will just go off to the left. But a few of them will go through these two holes. And obviously, a particle will go through one hole, and it'll come through, and it'll hit the screen, and you'll find a cluster corresponding to particles having gone through the upper hole. Or you might find a cluster 
of particles corresponding to particles that have gone through the lower hull. And if you did this experiment with a big wall and two holes in it and tennis balls, you'd actually see this. You'd have a cluster here for the balls that went through one, and a cluster here for the balls that went through the other. Perfectly natural. This is, uh, this is how things work on the macroscopic scale. And if we try and extend this theory to the microscopic scale, you'll see it breaks down. Okay, but before you see that, I'm going to show you how this experiment works with waves. If we assume that light is a wave, we again have a source on the left, only this time this whole chalkboard is permeated with like jello or water or some medium that you can jiggle. Okay. And so you have like a, a little plunger here or something that you can plunge up and down in the water and these ripples, you know, like if you throw a rock into a pond, these ripples spread out, okay? So these ripples come out of this source on the left. And notice that these aren't localized particles in one place or the other. It's just this wave that's everywhere non-localized, it's all spread out. And when I draw a line here, these concentric circles around the source, what I'm indicating is that that's where the wave reaches a crest. The wave oscillates up and down. And I'm just drawing a line here where the wave is, is at a peak. And so you can imagine in between each of these lines is where the wave is at a trough. So if you were to look at this, you'd actually, in three dimensions, see this thing going up and down. And this just corresponds to where it's up. Okay, now, what happens when this wave encounters these two slits? Well, what happens is the secondary waves are formed out of each of the slits. And you again get this pattern, but you get a pattern of intersecting waves. And what happens when these waves combine like this, you might have seen this too, if you drop two pebbles in the pond, these, these wave patterns spread out, and they're nice and beautiful circles until they hit each other. And then you see this weird pattern where they all intersect. Well, that's what's happening here. And if you were to see what the pattern is on the screen here, when these waves finally reach here, because they're interfering like this, if the two waves are in sync, they're going together like this, they'll add up. But if they are uh, out of sync, they destructively interfere, and they cancel each other out. And so you get nothing. And so as a consequence, you get what's called an interference pattern on this screen that's... Uh, it's like a sinusoidal wave with, with the waves being really big in the center and then sort of tapering off on the sides. Now you'll notice this looks nothing like what we had with particles. With particles we had a clump here and a clump there. In particular we had nothing in between. And amazingly enough, the most stuff we get the way with the waves is, is right in between the two slits. 
And so this result is very much different from the result you get for particles. And so particles and waves are behaving in very different ways. Okay, so people figured, well, you can experimentally determine then whether uh, light is a particle or a wave. You simply set up an experiment like this and you do it. And if you get this pattern, it's a wave. And if you get the other pattern, it's a particle. Simple enough. Okay, let's do it. Only now, instead of doing it with water waves or big baseballs or something, let's do it with small little subatomic particles. So in other words, we're, we're now entering the, the realm of experience outside <coughs> of the ordinary realm. We're not dealing with ordinary macroscopic things anymore. We're going down into the subatomic realm outside of our usual limited range of experience, and we're going to see what happens there. Well, what we find is particles are coming out of our source. If we were to put a screen right next to the source, we'd see bang, 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 bang. We'd have these particles appearing. Okay. So it appears as though particles are coming out of our source at the left. We say, hmm, well that seems to be consistent with Planck's theory that, that this light was particles. Okay. Now you look over on the right at your screen. What do you see? Well, you let a particle go over here on the left, and sure enough, a particle appears on the right on your screen. You let another one go, and it appears on the right. You say, wow, well, obviously particles are going through here. But what you notice is, as these particles keep coming through, they start building up, and what are they doing? You're sitting here watching this experiment, and the particles come through and they build up. You're waiting longer, the, part of the experiment's going on. You go have a cup of coffee. And you start to get kind of puzzled because this isn't the pattern emerging for particles. These particles are very confused because they're showing you the pattern that you saw for waves. So you go, oh man, what am I gonna how am I gonna figure this out? They're obviously particles, but the pattern's for waves. Hmm. Well, you have an idea. You say, I know that the reason I get this interference pattern with waves is because the waves come through both slits and they interfere with each other. They don't go through one slit or the other. They go through both and they, and they interfere and that's what creates this pattern. This pattern exists because there's interference from both slits at the same time. Whatever came through here came through both ways and interfered with itself to create a pattern like this. So, but on the other hand, these appear as particles. So let me look. Let me look at one of these slits. Because if I look here, I can see, well, a particle went through one way or the other. And, uh, and I can verify that it really was a particle coming through. Because you start to have your doubts after you see this pattern. Is it really a particle? What's going on here? Okay, so... 
So you run the experiment again, only you, you have a little detector here, or you set up a little screen here, to look at what's coming through the upper hole. And sure enough, you find there's particles appearing. But what appears on the screen in back is a single cluster corresponding to the particle pattern for things having gone through the other hole. So what's happened is by, by looking at what comes through the upper hole, you prevented things from interfering. And so you get the result on the screen that corresponds to particles having gone through one way or the other. <coughs> okay, so what does this tell you? It tell is it detector block the top hole? Yeah. You could have it uh, just detect part of them, and then you get like a small little hump here. Some of them might get by here. So what you notice is that as long as you're not looking, as long as you don't tell whether it goes through one hole or the other, it goes through both, and you get the interference pattern. But if you look to see which hole it went through, it goes through one or the other. So what we can conclude from this is that when we're not looking, these particles actually exist as waves. They're non-local. They're spread out. They're not... They don't have this localized existence. As I mean, we normally think, well, there are these particles, they're running around, and it doesn't matter if I look at them or not. They're moving around in space, they're little points, and they have a definite position. But this explicitly contradicts that idea. You cannot think of the particle as having gone through one hole or the other exclusively of each other. It has to go through both holes in order to create this interference pattern. Yeah. Yeah, but supposing the two, you have two particles going through, they interfere with each other. Could we solve this by just allowing one particle to go through at times so there's no possibility of interfering with another particle in some funny way? Right. Yeah, you can run this experiment with one particle going through at a time, you'll still get the interference. So each particle has to vanish from existence or something I mean, <coughs> and, and, and go through as this non-local wave thing, whatever it is, through both slits. So it's, it's not existing as a particle as it goes through here. A particle in the sense of being having some definite position in space. They spread out everywhere. And then finally, it, it hits the screen, and for some mysterious reason, suddenly this whole spread out thing, there it is. And another one comes through, and it ends up over here. And another one comes through, and as they accumulate, one by one, they create this interference pattern. 
Let me give you a variation on this, in case this one wasn't quite clear to you. There's another, another version of this experiment that might, uh, might be more clear or confusing. So just, just uh, <laughs> forget the one that uh, is confusing to you. Hopefully they both won't be. Okay, so we have a source of light again. And it's coming down at this uh, piece of glass. And as you, if you ever look out your window at night, you'll notice that um, a lot of the light gets reflected back at you. Mm-hmm. You can see yourself. And so whenever light passes through glass, some of it goes through. I mean, obviously someone outside the window can see you. And so some of your light is going through the glass, but other part is coming back at you, so you can see yourself. And that's what's happening here. Some of this light hits this and comes up this way, and some of it goes through and comes down this way. Okay, and then these bounce back together. What I've drawn here are three uh, horizontal mirrors, uh, two in the center of the board and uh, one off to the left. And the light beam comes from the upper left, and one beam shoots off to the upper top of the board, and the other's coming down to the lower bottom, and they get reflected, and they intersect over on the right side of the board. Normally, they pass right through each other, and we have two detectors here, one for one beam and one for the other. And what we find is that the particles get emitted from the source over here on the left. And again, we can emit them one by one. And what we notice is this detector, it, let's say it clicks each time it will rise. So this particle uh, either comes to one detector or the other. And so we notice one detector clicking 50% of the time and the other detector clicking 50% of the time. And this makes perfect sense to us in terms of a particle having had a local existence along one path or the other. It either chose to go this way or this way, and then it just followed along perfectly fine. Okay. But let's say we we place another beam splitter, just like the first one over here that split the beams, at the point where the two beams intersect, over on the right side. What will happen is, these beams will be uh, split, and some of them will go through, and others will be reflected, and you'll end up with four beams now, instead of two, because each of the two is again split. Only two of the four are uh, combined because of the way this geometry is set up. (coughs) Two of them come up to the upper detector and two of them come down to the lower detector. And this is the equivalent of causing these two to interfere with each other. Just put them on top of each other. Okay? Now what you find is that you don't get 50% and 50% anymore you get 100% and 0%. And the reason for this 
you have to look pretty carefully at this experiment. If you look at the distance from the upper detector to the source, it's different from from the lower detector. Left, um, these two beams coming to the upper detector, one of them gets reflected, 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 reflected. Notice it never passes through one of these beam splitters. Okay, now what about the other beam that comes to the upper detector? It goes through this, it gets reflected, and it goes through this one. Right. So these two beams have gone a different distance. And the way this has been set up, it has shifted this I think I just got this backwards. The upper detector gets 0%, and the lower detector gets 100%. Because these two beams, as I just showed you, travel different distances, and that causes them to be shifted from each other. One of them had to go a little further, so when they end up here together, one of them shifted a little bit. It's lagging behind. Okay. And so these destructively interfere, and you end up with nothing. Okay, so how about the lower detector, where you get 100%? Well, let's follow these beams. One of them goes through, gets reflected, and reflected. The other gets reflected, reflected, and then goes through. And so each of these two beams coming down to the bottom detector has gone through a beam splitter once, and so they're still in sync. And so there's no destructive interference and you get 100% here. So the, the way to understand your results here is to think of an interference effect happening, as if there are waves traveling through this. And you you can't explain this in terms of particles, but you'd still expect the 50-50 if there were particles going through here. So the 0-100 tells you that there's some sort of interference happening, and that you don't have isolated particles. <coughs> you can't think of them following one path or the other. They have to be going both ways. And this is analogous to having gone through both slits. So this is this has told us pretty conclusively that at least on the subatomic level, particles don't have an objective position when we're not looking at them. And so when I this cup supposedly is made up of particles, right? A bunch of these subatomic particles. And so when I don't look at it. <laughs> Okay, it's not there. And really, if you think about it, there's no way I can prove to myself that it really is there when I'm not looking at it. I'm not looking at it, so I can't prove that it's there, unless I look at it, at which point it's there, of course, because I looked. Now, now, how do we explain, if matter is really like this, if matter has this bizarre 
property that it doesn't exist unless we're looking at it, then how do we explain the fact that, well, I can set the cup down, I can go off to the bathroom and come back and the cup's still there, and, and it hasn't interfered with the clock and done bizarre <laughs> things like this. Uh, you know, I, when I throw my baseballs, they don't end up with an interference pattern. How do we explain all that? Well, some people have said that, well, that, that stuff takes place for subatomic particles, and, and the real macroscopic world really doesn't have anything to do with that. And they try and just sort of ignore it. But really that doesn't make a lot of sense, because this cup is made up of all the subatomic particles. I mean, all of physics says so, and you can analyze the, the little ceramic atoms and molecules, and you break it all down, and, and you find things that behave like this. And, and actually, if you go back to Heisenberg and Bohr again, let me share with you a quote from Heisenberg. He says, the statistical features of natural laws are ubiquitous and a matter of principle. So he's saying that this funny behavior, it's, it's everywhere, and it's a matter of principle, like the roundness of the earth. And he continues, it's just that these quantum mechanical features are far more obvious in atomic structures than in the, obvi than in the objects of daily experience. So it's just that it's not obvious for this cup. Just in the same sense that if you're restricted to a small piece of the Earth, it's not obvious that it's round. You have to go off far away in order to see that it's really round. And this is all pretty shocking. Uh, at least it should be. <laughs> and Niels Bohr realized this, and he said that uh, those who are not shocked when they first come across quantum theory cannot possibly have understood it. <laughs> so hopefully you're a little shocked. <laughs> and you're shocked because you have understood it a little bit. Um, to dramatize how shocking this is, Schrodinger invented this... Uh, now famous thought experiment. He didn't actually do this. <laughs> <laughs> what he did is he started with uh, an atom that uh, is radioactive, and so it will decay. And just as uh, these particles in these experiments I just described don't have a definite state, one position or the other, while we're not looking, this atomic particle that's going to de decay doesn't, it hasn't decayed or not decayed until we look at it to see which has happened. And so it's, it's in this bizarre non-local uh, state where it hasn't decided what it's doing yet. It's in both at once until we look. So he puts this uh, radioactive particle in a box. Let's say it's right down here in the bottom corner of a box. And there's a little detector here next to the particle. And it's going to detect when the particle has decayed. Because... <laughs> She might get spooked. 
So this detector, when it detects the particle, it's going to send a signal uh, to this lever that's going to drop and uh, break this bottle. And inside the bottle is some terrible poison. And uh, and we put a cat in here. <laughs> and uh, this cat is going to die, of course, from this poison. And. The whole thing, though, is contained in this box, so we haven't observed it. And so this whole thing, including the cat, is in the state of not being one or the other, not being alive, not being dead, just as the particle didn't go one way, didn't go the other. It's in this state where it hasn't yet defined its particular existence yet. And most people find this very hard to stomach, the fact that a cat, and you're not looking at it, could be alive or dead until you look at it. It just seems bizarre. And some people have argued that, well, things on the macroscopic scale, they just don't... Um, we don't have to worry about it then, and we can just sort of ignore all this and not worry about cats and things like this. And partly they're right, but partly also they're wrong, because there are uh, macroscopic objects that definitely have quantum behavior. If you go down to the physics department here, you can go into some of the labs, and uh, Professor Donnelly will show you his superfluid experiment and there are all these vortices and things, and this liquid has been cooled down, and it's a macroscopic quantum state. It's definitely existing in a, in a state that can only be explained with quantum mechanics. It doesn't have classical behavior at all. It's a macroscopic quantum state. And there are other sorts of uh, phenomena like this also, not just superfluids, but superconductors. You may have heard of those. And even lasers are large things that have a macroscopic coherence. So, how do we explain the fact that I can usually get away with thinking of my cup as objectively existing? And let's suppose you've accepted all this quantum mechanical stuff. Take that as given, and then and then ask yourself, how is it that these macroscopic objects can nonetheless appear to have objective existence? So they don't, but how do I explain the fact that they appear to? Well, there have been some lots of work on this <coughs> question relatively recently, and there's a theory called uh, the theory of decoherence that uh, that tries to explain how this happens. And it's analogous to explaining how on a round earth it could appear flat if you're looking at a small piece of it. And the idea basically is this, that these two particles in the experiment before, they came through the two slits as, as this wave, and they created two other wave patterns, and these two patterns were uh, 
in sync with each other or not in sync. And so they had a certain coherence. They were they were intertangled with each other. They were in phase or um, they were definitely had a relationship to each other. And that's what allowed the interference pattern to happen. And the same with the beam splitter experiment. They were definitely shifted relative to each other or not. And so this interference depends on uh, the relationship between these parts, either being shifted relative to each other or not. Now what happens in a, in a macroscopic object is you have so many of these particles doing so many different things that you have uh, these interferences being shifted in all sorts of different ways and there are so many of them being combined that on the macroscopic scale it appears to sort of average out. One analogy you could think of is in this cup there are a bunch of atoms and they're all jiggling around and that's what makes the cup uh, kind of warm. When I hold on to it, it feels warm and that's because the atoms are jiggling. And if you study this with physics, the atoms are actually jiggling very fast. You know, some of them are, I don't know what the exact calculation is, but they might be going 50 miles an hour or something. Well, the cup obviously isn't going 50 miles an hour. But the reason for that is that all these atoms, they're all going in, in, at 50 miles per hour in different directions. And then they stop and they turn around and they come back. And so all this movement sort of gets averaged out. And so that on the whole, the cup appears to just be sitting there. Well, why does it appear to be the exact same shape, color, each time? all of these atoms that are moving, the average, the average is the same all the time? Right. Right. So they, I mean, obviously, if you if you heated this up a lot, it would just melt or something. No, well, no. Right, so... Does it have to be about the perspective eyes as well? The limits of eyes? Well, if you want, if you started looking at this with an electron microscope, you'd start to see very different things. So in that sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. Different color. Uh, well, at that point, there really isn't uh, much color per se. A lot of color is due to effects in our uh, the cones and rods and stuff in our eye and all that sort of business. And so, um, you would be able to de detect, for example, the frequencies of light that are that are coming off. So, to the extent that that makes sense to you, and that's about as well as I think it can be described without going into all sorts of mathematical details, that's how the, the world, the quantum world could possibly appear to have some sort of semblance of existing in the usual way, even though it really doesn't. And um, there are a couple quotes here that uh, I'd like to share with you that are very similar to this idea. One is uh, from a Tibetan named Longchenpa, 
and this is from a Dzogchen text. And what he says is that what appears never becomes what it seems to be. So this this appearance it never actually becomes what it seems to be, namely an objective thing. And in fact, it is this quantum state that doesn't have one definite existence or another, but yet it seems to be something else, but it never actually becomes that. In the same sense that the, the round earth seems to be flat, but it never actually becomes flat. I mean, that would be ridiculous to say that, oh, well, when you shrink down to a certain point, suddenly the world really becomes flat. I mean, that's, that's not true. We can suddenly have the illusion that it's flat. That might be sudden. But it doesn't really become flat suddenly. And so in the same sense, this cup never actually becomes what it seems to be. And Nagarjuna, another Buddhist philosopher, says that the ultimate reality is unmade. It will never be other than what it always is. So it's, this cup is unmade in the sense that it never actually is made into an objective thing. The illusion might be made that it is an objective <laughs> thing, but, but it never really is. So... To that extent, I think quantum mechanics is uh, pretty compatible with uh, some of the highest teachings that the mystics have offered us. And um, I hope you might have had a little glimpse of that today. So, are there any questions? <laughs> well, I'm kind of curious about yourself now. Are your perceptions. Um, have you taken that leap like the person did that went back 500 years that really knew the earth was round? Do you, do you really feel this day in and day out now that you, you know, you're <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because to what extent do we really feel ourselves orbiting the sun? To what extent when you see the sunrise do you really experience the earth turning and the sun just sitting there. I mean, it, it's an interesting experiment to do. You might try doing it one morning, like while you're meditating at sunrise, watching the sun rise and seeing whether the sun is rising or you're falling. I, I can speak to that because yeah. I read about that actually uh, uh, in a book somebody called an astronomer who made a concerted effort to do this, and I was living on the desert at the time, which is much easier, because, you know, this is clear horizon. And I, and I would get up just before sunrise, and actually wake up. And so for a while, I'd go out and I'd sit, and I'd watch. And it took a while, but I, I actually could get that sense, and it was very disorientating. <laughs> yeah. And it's just a little bit like what you said before about the trains passing. Mm -hmm. If you'd always assume one, and suddenly you really got the sense of the other. You know? mm -hmm. I don't know how well you could actually, in a practical sense, function walking around, always feeling the air, falling away. But it, it is possible to do it. It is possible to get some kind of sense of that by shifting your basic reference. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious about your 
you know, actually, I've uh, sort of experimented as a thought, experiment on that one because it's been raised that way. You know, in that same way of falling around the circle, that I find it when I you know, holding that idea, it's easier, life is easier to go through because all I have to do is just sort of fall into the next moment. Oh, you're talking, oh, okay, you're talking about the time rather than, yeah, you know, your experience or, you know, just walking one step <coughs> after another to sort of, you know, fall into the next step or something here. And it made it easier for me and I've been looking for it. It makes it easier, you know. But this is very interesting, isn't it? Because it's your change of an idea or sort of a point of view can actually change your experience. Isn't that what you're... And that's, mm -hmm. that's something that, again, is Definitely. a broader question, but in science we assume facts are facts and theories don't change them. Theories don't change our experience, but in our, in our actual experience, by changing a point of view, you can actually have a, a real direct change of experience. So the changing over to a quantum mechanical um, what, view, or, you know, rather than a classical mechanical view, changes the experience of life quite vastly, would you say? Well, what's what's uh, interesting is that you can and people do, work with the mathematics and the experiments and everything without really taking it to heart. I mean, it's like what Joel was saying earlier about the instructions for the meditation. You can sit and read books about mystics and philosophies forever and not you know, have a single glimpse into the reality of it until you sit down and you practice. And um, with this sort of stuff, it's very similar. In order to really experience the world this way, you have to sit down and really start um, trying to experience it that way. And you know, one way of doing that is to meditate and you know, put the put the cup there and and just see if you can experience that cup is not objectively existing. <laughs> see what that means. You know? Test it out and see what you find. And most physicists don't do that. Now, I can't make it not objectively exist. Um, and it gets a little freaky for me if I actually try to do that, because you know, there are many senses that say, look, don't be fooled. It objectively exists. It's right there. But that other view helps me to um, see it in other lights and other levels and other vibrations and it's larger, you know, reality that it's a focal point, it's a physical manifestation of some wave process that's an ongoing thing. Now I guess I'm defending its objectivity because <laughs> it's so right there that I can't just let it be said this is not an object, it's an illusion, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, well, you're, you're right in the sense that, like Joel was saying earlier, you can't walk around in the world and think that, you know, it's, it's a very useful construct. And this is what the Buddhists often call the conventional reality. I mean, it's, 
it's definitely very useful, and we need it. Uh, just like you know, the idea of a flat Earth—it's very useful, and you know, we use it, and, and it's it's great for planning out cities and you know, building roads and you know, measuring the area of your house so that you can order carpet, you know. And so, but when it comes down to it, we don't confuse that with the reality of the Earth. And we can use that, and we can function with it, and take it for what it is without confusing it with what's ultimately real about the Earth. So the analogy here is that we can consider this as an objective cup and deal with it and drink out of it and all this stuff, and we don't have to constantly worry about whether it's really there or not. But when it comes right down to it, you know, I don't know if... Uh, well, can I... Yeah. Because one of the reasons, for instance, the Buddhists, and they use this term specifically, uh, the Tibetan Buddhists, that the, what is to be seen in insight is that nothing inherently exists, which is just a fancy way of saying everything we've been talking about does not have any objective reality. And it's not just a idle philosophical question, but if you have an, can have that experience that nothing inherently exists, then how it actually changes your life in so-called a practical way is you begin to see how your attachments are futile. There's nothing to attach to. And when you begin to see that nothing inherently exists and that all this striving to grasp onto things, the, the way we spend so much of our lives, uh, is futile because it's, you know, it's like trying to grasp waves. You can't grasp them. You tend to relax that. And when you tend to relax that, then there's less suffering in life because you expect things not to be there. You know everything's impermanent. You know that your suffering, a large part of your suffering, comes from this futile effort to grasp onto what isn't there. And so, in a, from a mystic's point of view, not a scientist's point of view, the, the value of this is to do try to really experience it uh, as the underflow of reality, let's say. And, and to always know that deeply so that you're not constantly fooled into trying to latch on to things and expect them to make you happy because they, they'll never just ever quite make it. They'll never be really there to grab hold of them. And they'll always be disintegrating, dissolving, and passing on. So there's a, there's a, a therapeutic reason for this from a mystic's point of view. You know, as well as whether it's interesting the question what's real or not, if you're in a philosophical Well, the, the sense that I'm getting right now is that like the cup is there, and if I close my eyes, it's no longer there. But when I open my eyes and I see it again, it's as though I'm creating it, but then my thinking is that consciousness is creating it, uh, and I am not consciousness. It's, it's oh. something like this is beyond me. Mm -hmm. This is, I, this is all being created by something higher than me. And that's the thing I'm getting right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it, it goes uh, out of the domain of physics, but you, you might say that even your idea of you is also of this nature. That doesn't exist either. It exists in the realm of ideas, but not in the realm of the physical. 
Can I ask a question about this decoherence? I don't know if you give a, a quick answer or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to last stuff. But from I, I read uh, Thomas sent me this book that talks about this, and it's a very complicated book. And later, Thomas going to explain it in detail. But I gather. Tell me if I'm right or not. I gathered that uh, that even with this whole idea of decoherence and everything averages is out, we never get beyond a probability weight. I mean, we never get to a, we always have a probabilistic description that's always probable that it's going to happen, but we never get to a description that it actually has happened. Is that true? Right. So, so that was mathematically, <laughs> mathematically, even this perception of a particle hitting a screen uh, it never actually happens. I mean, it always still remains probable that that's where you would find the particle if you could find the particle. Right. right. Yeah. That opens a whole can of worms. <laughs> I just, I just yeah. wonder if I was reading that right. Yeah. So the, the decoherence really explains um, why there's no interference between these macroscopic objects. So why these wave effects don't manifest on this level. It's sort of average out. But it doesn't it doesn't settle the ultimate problem of actually having the particle appear in one particular spot. Yeah, why doesn't some of those particles become the wall while that's leaning against the wall? Well, the real... It comes down to this. If, if, you, if you followed this decoherent stuff all the way to the end, you would get uh, macroscopic objects not interfering with each other. And so they'd be behaving just like classical uh, conventional objects do. Only the cat that's alive and the cat that's dead, there, there would be no preference for <coughs> having one actually happen or the other. They would indeed not interfere with each other anymore. And so they'd each have sort of a, an independent conventional existence. But they would be simultaneously existing both of those possibilities would be just as real as the other. And neither one would actually happen, as opposed to and, and destroying the other, so to speak. And so this raises the problem, well, does one actually happen? And which one, and why, and how does that happen? And this is the whole collapse of the wave function business that's a big mystery that I don't think anyone's ever solved. And they're not able to solve that. Yeah. That sounds similar to the many world theory. Is that still. Uh, yeah. Very, very. Yeah. Lot, as a matter of fact, lots of cosmologists favor that theory because it doesn't, um, doesn't have to deal with all these problems of collapse, first of all. And second of all, the, the collapse itself is often introduced to solve this problem, but then it introduces all sorts of other problems. And so people sort of look at it as some ad hoc thing you throw in. And they'd rather just leave it out, and the whole thing's much more elegant and simple. 
And one picture of what happens is that, well, <coughs> neither one actually does happen, that in fact there, there's a world where the cat's alive and there's another world where the cat's dead. And they all have, uh, they're on equal footing. And we might identify with one world and not the other, and that's just an artifact of the fact that we happen to be in this world and not the other. And, of course, someone in that world, they're not um, interfering with us because of the very nature of decoherence. And so we don't know about them. But it's going on its own happy way. Actually, the week of being in both worlds. Right. If the cat can be, then why can't we be? Well, yeah, then there's the question of what is the cat really experiencing internally? Mm -hmm. Does the cat actually experience being in both worlds or not one or the other? And I don't know. Some people may have this kind of confusion or experience. Of <laughs> I know people living in a different world. <laughs> <laughs> Them up. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, this idea of the many worlds, it sounds really bizarre and people often dismiss it because it's, it's uh, so crazy to think that there are all these different realities running around, but if, if I give any reality at all to the fact that John is a person over there sitting there looking at me, then that, well, there's another world. It's over there and it's looking over at this, his world shows me next to this chalkboard, but that's not my world. I don't even see a chalkboard in my world. It's supposedly behind my back, but I don't see it, so it's in a weird quantum states. But for John, it's actually there. And so there are many worlds, you know, as many as there are people in this. That makes all sense to point out this many worlds theory is probably the most conservative interpretation of quantum mechanics there is. <laughs> that's not, that's not a, that's, I mean, you know, that's the one with the, where you have to bring, you don't have to bring consciousness in as much and so forth. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, a lot of people think these, uh, these, these are all really weird out, you know, way out ideas. But this, we start with, there are infinite worlds being created in every moment. That's the most conservative position. <laughs> it gets wilder from there. Yeah, this uh, Quantum Realities book is, uh, as Joel said, it's an overview of all these different interpretations. People have tried to come up with ways to make sense of this, and no matter which way they've tried, they end up with something very bizarre. So there's really no way out of it. You, you either trade one bizarre thing for another bizarre thing, or no matter how you slice it, it's, it's not like anything we experience. I think we're experiencing in one of those, you know, I can't help but think that some these particles that are something that they have confidence between them, they're, they're, they're acting in a magical sort of space <coughs> or you know, magical that to us because we don't understand the connection. <coughs> when those particles went through and when they're on the wall, they formed that certain pattern that they had, they were Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one of these interpretations <coughs> tries to um, pursue the idea that somehow these particles do exist uh, objectively somehow, but then they're forced to they're forced into the position that 
their existence has an instantaneous connection with everything everywhere else at the same time without any force or anything to communicate. It's like instant. And so, well, electromagnetic uh, interactions are limited by the speed of light. And these are even beyond the speed of light. They're superluminal, faster than light connections. Instant. But that kind of instantaneous. Yeah, yeah. It's so instant that it, it uh, starts to be very bizarre. Then you could go back and Well, yeah, people have theories. And there was a recent article in Scientific American even about time travel and uh, how that sort of thing might be possible near black holes and all sorts of exotic things. We're far from being able to actually do those things if they're possible at all. <coughs> well, if there aren't any other questions, or if there are, we can discuss them informally. I guess we can both and have tea now. Right. If anybody would like to stay around and have another cup of tea and uh, check out the library, John, you going to get in there? Yep. Uh, and uh, <laughs> thanks again, John.